Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Monday, June 12th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sad news from the world of international relations, which is to say of the world today. Berlusconi, who led three Italian governments between 1994 and 2011, was suffering from leukemia and sometime had recently developed a lung infection. Doctors acknowledging that the lung infection had spread to the left and right lobes, or what they call in Italian, lunga lunga. Silvio Berlusconi was born lower middle class, but was a literal showman who sang on cruise ships as a young man. He parlayed a real estate empire to media empire, eventually becoming Italy's richest man. He got elected to high office for a short time, but then for a longer time, holding the prime ministership for all but two years in the naughty aughties and Il Cavaliere was a naughty man. Scandal, sex parties, off-color remarks, each served to actually burnish his appeal as a swaggering symbol of fun in contrast to the bureaucracy of the state. But fun doesn't mean economic ballast, because whatever means he utilized for personal enrichment, Berlusconi could not bring those to bear on the Italian economy overall, which crippled under his watch. His party, Forza Italia, which is a soccer cheer, is the equivalent to a U.S. political party being named Let's Go Yankees. They forged a center-right to far-right coalition, which, if not successful policy-wise, did serve to torture and bedevil the Italian left. Berlusconi was the target of scathing and accurate attacks, or really descriptions, in whatever press he didn't own, exposed to have conducted sex parties, allegedly with underage girls. He was convicted of false accounting, bribing judges, and illegal political party financing. He demonized the judiciary successfully, actually, labeling them toga rossa, or red robes. Toga? Robes? Get it? Italian. It works. He left in his wake an angrier, less well-off society, which he proved could be manipulated through the mass media. In his wake, I have composed this poem of remembrance to the memory of Silvio Berlusconi, il Cavaliere, or the Knight. Though the trials and fraud convictions must have stunga stunga, and while voted out quite often to power he clunga clunga, he always had an excuse or boast dripping from his tonga. Though dung was flung and sometimes clung to the crowd, he was a manga. Berlusconi leaves one legacy, maybe two, depending on how you count. Bunga bunga. Silvio Berlusconi was 86 years old. His family asks that all donations be made out to hookers. On the show today, those Canadian wildfires. Who to blame? But first, until very recently, El Salvador was a country in chaos, with gang warfare replacing the government in much of the country. But that was before the intervention of President Nayib Bukele, who has used brutality to fight brutality. The streets are safe again. The president has a 91% approval rating, and there are thousands of innocent people in jail, though thousands more 
not innocent people have been detained and taken off the streets as well. The question is, how can a crackdown like this coexist within a democracy or even within the idea of a democracy? We found someone steeped in the developing story to discuss it. Up next, journalist Francisco Toro. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. El Salvador is one of the most dangerous, crime-ridden, murderous countries in the Western Hemisphere, indeed the world. Well, I should say it was, as of the last year, something of a crime-fighting miracle has occurred. El Salvador's president, Naib Bukele, has first made a truce with gangs and then began cracking down. 65,000 arrests. Now, this is in a country of six and a half million people. So he arrested 1% of the population and many of them, thousands of them were in no way guilty, but it quote unquote worked. Murder has plunged. People are returning to the streets, playing soccer freely, not being harassed by some of the most dangerous and infamous gangs, MS-13, Barrio 18 in the hemisphere. But at what cost. Francisco Toro, a journalist and the content director for the Group of 50, who's a contributing editor at Persuasion Magazine, has written about the tactics of the president of El Salvador, and he worries about what this means for democracy there, really everywhere. Francisco, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. So give us a lay of the land. How bad was El Salvador? El Salvador had been taken over by gangs to a, to a degree that I think people in the U.S. can barely understand. Um, El Salvador isn't really on any good drug trafficking routes. So these gangs, they lived off of extortion, just shaking down store owners, small business owners, store owners, anybody in their path for money aggressively. And pretty much everybody had to pay them off. They were very violent if they didn't agree with each other, they'd start shooting each other. If you didn't pay up, they would shoot you. 
And uh, people were entirely sick of it. It has been the main political problem in El Salvador for a very long time. But it seemed like one of these problems that had no solution. Because if you picked up one out of every 10 gang, gang members, well, then the rest of the gang was just short-staffed. And they were going to make up for that by just being more violent. So you needed to do something genuinely crazy to try to make a dent in this problem, which was put all of the gang members into jail at the same time. Nobody thought that was possible. Right. And the problem with that is, which we'll get to, all of, uh, they got they got about 150% of the gang members, right. it would seem. So before Bukele, and tell me a little bit about his rise to power, before he tried this, he did try a truce. What happened with that? Well, he inherited a truce. Previous governments, the gangs are so powerful, they were better armed than the Salvadoran police, uh, on a par with the Salvadoran military. So previous governments had taken this as almost as though it were an insurgency, even though they're not political, the gangs in any way. And they had tried to get them to talk to each other, decide whose turf was where, and stop shooting each other to bring down the violence. And that did work, actually. By the time Bukele took power in 2019, uh, violence was down from very high peaks, sort of Iraq-level peaks in 2015 or so. Uh, but those truce, truces, as you would imagine, they are fragile. People disagree on where the turf limit is. People get into fights with each other over stuff, and then somebody starts shooting. So there, there was this breakdown in March 2022 in the last truce, and there was one weekend where like 86 people were murdered, mostly gang members shooting each other. And at that point, Bukele made this decision to just say, okay, forget about this. This is not going to work. No more truces. And he suspended constitutional guarantees, like human rights guarantees in the Salvadoran constitution, and told the army and the police, uh, pick them all up. And you can sort of imagine his general saying, uh, sir, you don't mean, no, 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 go and pick them all up. And as it happens, they're kind of easy to tell apart because... Um, these they, these gangs started out as prison gangs, and there's a strong culture in prison gangs to to put on very visible gang tattoos. So the order seems to have been: if you see somebody with gang tattoos, they're going to jail, and there's not going to be a trial or anything. Right. And so, just to get our heads around that, eighty people murdered in one weekend. Uh, there were headlines, and I'll read you from an NBC News headline that ran couple days ago. At least 16 dead, dozens injured in shootings across the U.S. Over, over Memorial Day weekend. This was the weekend that just passed. So El Salvador in one weekend, and not a three-day weekend, had five times that number. And we're talking about a country with 2% of the population of the United States. It's, it's just unfathomable. Everybody you talk to in El Salvador who's lived there for the last 15 years has a story. They've They've seen the kidnapping. They've seen the shootout. This stuff seeps into people's lives, especially poorer people. And they said, well, if you're part of the elite, well, maybe you're a little bit insulated. But everyday people just had to deal with this. And with the police, that couldn't do anything. So if you, if you had a problem, if you had a safety problem on your street, if you got held up or something went missing, the gangs ended up being sort of the police. They were, they were kind of this de facto state, uh, but a predatory state, and people hated them. So how did the uh, crackdown work? It, it did work to get uh, violence to decrease greatly. What were the, in, how many innocents were caught up in the drag that? Well, that we don't know because there are no 
there haven't been any trials and the investigations are just starting. Um, the investigation, the human rights investigations are also just starting. Just last week, a Salvadoran human rights group published evidence of at least 153 killings within prison uh, after the crackdown, Many in many cases with bodies that are returned to the families with clear signs of, of torture, of beatings, of strangulation, of just hideous stuff. But nobody knows there are no human rights ombudsmans in, in these prisons. And, um, you know, what we know is that these people had tattoos, but we've also seen a situation where if you leave a gang, you still have the tattoos. People can't afford to get these things taken off. That's expensive. And some of those guys ended up getting caught up in the, in the dragnet, too. Um, and so maybe some of them have contacts abroad. They can, they can get some, some noise uh, on social media and stuff. And we know Bukele loves his social media. So some of them might make their way out. But other people who have fewer resources, uh, who just got caught up on this, or who maybe got a tattoo because they were drunk or whatever it is, they don't seem to have any redress. Uh, so the statistics I've seen that are that the Salvadoran government has arrested more than 65,000 people, but by their own admission, they're in their own action, they released 5,000 of them with no connection to gangs. And this is just the people they admit that they arrested incorrectly. I would expect that a uh, would-be autocrat with no accountability would not readily admit it in the case where there's any sort of uh, gray area. So it would seem to me that there's a lot more behind bars who don't deserve to be. A lot more. For sure. For sure. But there's just no no way to tell. But part of the point, part of what makes this so tricky is that the thing that a lot of Salvadorans seem to be responding to in Bukele is this, this idea that the cruelty is the point. Um, yeah. Bukele has not in any way soft pedal how harsh the prison conditions are. He's designed the new prisons that these people are going to be put into so that they'll each have 60 square centimeters, which is like like five square feet. Yeah, I've seen I've seen pretty slickly made promotional videos that the government puts out of these prisons, including one claimed to be the biggest in the Americas, holding 40,000 prisoners. But th these these prisons are designed from scratch to to not be adequate for the number of people being put there. And the other thing is yeah. that throughout Latin America, and I think in the U.S. too, people know that if you put rival gangs in prison, you have to segregate them or else they will kill each other. Right. And Bukele has clearly and loudly and repeatedly announced that there will be no segregation inside these prisons. So it's almost like he's he's creating these conditions is inviting a massacre uh, inside of these prisons. And, and the more that he makes those kinds of noises, the higher his approval rating goes in the polls. It's, it's very upsetting, actually. His approval ratings are now 90%? 91 was the last, last I saw. Uh, disapproval at 7%, which is roughly the percentage of Americans who think the moon landings were faked. Yeah. I mean, if those numbers, if the polling is accurate, and who knows how much uh, people are willing to freely express their opinions in El Salvador, it would seem that there are people who are approving of his actions who have had family members unjustly arrested. Few things unite salvadoreños like this feeling of a revulsion and disgust and just this urge 
to get back at the gangs. Like if he's saying right wing politicians in the U.S. hate MS-13 and Barrio Ocho, you have no idea. You should go to San Salvador. That's where people really hate the gangs. Yeah, um, it is. It's it's a horrific situation. It's uh, he relieved a populace who is terrorized. He's um, benefiting from the results of that interdiction. But either from his personality or his actions, what has he done? Not of a law enforcement ilk that would indicate if does he want to use this extreme measure to bolster his popularity and govern democratically? Or is he seeing this as, oh, wow, I got 90% approval. I have no regard for whatever the rule of law is. I know that I have Congress and the courts just kind of on my side. Is he a burgeoning, I use the word, I'll use again, autocrat? I don't think he makes any pretension of being very interested in democracy. This is a a guy who a few years back before he had a clear majority in Congress, when Congress seemed to stall in passing some of his uh, reforms, he sent soldiers into the actual debating chamber with guns to bully them into, into approving his legislative package. That's no longer necessary because in subsequent elections, he got all the seats in Congress he could want and then some. So... Bukele is not trying to fool anyone into thinking that he's a Democrat. He calls himself the coolest dictator in the world. And, and his, his role model, and he's quite explicit about this, is, is Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew. He's, okay. That at least gives me hope, though. Well, I mean, it's it's difficult to know how we think about this. He is a guy who wants to go down in history as the guy who made El Salvador into a little like Singapore in Central America. Clean, competently governed, uh, safe, and but not democratic in any way that anybody can, can recognize. Um, now, is this a future that we want for Latin America? Is this a future that Latin America is, is willing to sign up for? I think a lot of people in Latin America would take this deal because there's, there's huge disenchantment with what has happened in democracy in the hemisphere. Yeah, well, I'm just glad he's not an aspiring Rodrigo uh, Duterte or some other strongman who has no pretensions of actually, except for uh, rhetorical purposes, delivering material goods to the populace. I mean, if you did the Rawls test about where what society would you like to be born into, Singapore is certainly higher than El Salvador is now and is probably higher than most of El Salvador's neighbors. It's... Uh... It's not the kind of question where your ideological priors are going to guide you very clearly on how you feel about this. Um, nobody could want to live in the way that Salvadoreños were living like seven years ago. That's yeah. that's crazy. Uh, but on the other hand, look, populists like this and autocrats like this are almost more dangerous. They're not almost more dangerous. They're more dangerous when they're successful because when they're successful, they invite copycats. And this is a thing that you're starting to see around Latin America. The mayor of, of Lima uh, in Peru is now running for the Peruvian president explicitly on a Bukele platform of saying, this works, El Salvador shows that it works, let's just do it here. And there's a guy in Argentina mm-hmm. running on, the, on a similar platform. Uh, the president of Guatemala has been saying, well, you know, we can't deny that what Bukele did worked. So Bukele might be as benevolent as dictators come. I mean, I hope for Salvadoran's sake that, that, that he is. But his copycats, I have no faith in everybody around the hemisphere acting with the same benevolence. But what you are doing is you're creating 
a, stru a permission structure, people would say, for Latin Americans to say, well, we tried democracy, it didn't really work here, here's this alternative model, let's go with that. And maybe 30 years from now, Latin America is just dotted with countries that have gone down this Bukele path, but have ended up in like different places that are, some of, whom, some of which are not desirable destinations. So what about that question, though, about competence, right? It's easier, you said, when the guy's incompetent to dismiss it. Is he competent or did he get this one thing right because he went big in a big way? Because, you know, our, my listeners should know that if they recall this guy, wait, why was he in the news? He was a crypto bro, right? He was yeah. turning he was turning the whole country and embracing uh, Bitcoin. And that was kind of an embarrassing disaster. So to, back to my original question, assess his overall competence um, apart from or maybe even including the big crackdown. Uh, look, we don't know. Uh, but the, the Bitcoin thing tells you more than about his competence, about his ambition and how he envisions himself and El Salvador's role going forward. Bitcoin is now, it's still legal tender in El Salvador. You can pay your Salvadoran income tax with Bitcoin if you want. Nobody does it, but you could. Um, he see, saw Bitcoin in 2019 when he came into power as this shiny new financial industry thing that he wanted and, and the sort of thing that he wanted El Salvador to be at the forefront of. He said, you know, Singapore became as rich as Singapore became being a country with about the population of El Salvador because it became a financial hub and the place in Asia where you went with capital. Well, there isn't a financial hub in Central America other than Miami. What if we had one? What if we competed? on that kind of ground. This is the way that he's thinking El Salvador's road to prosperity travels. Now, is that going to work? I have no idea, but but it's what he will tell you is that it will certainly not work if people are getting murdered left, right, and center on the street. So you have to establish the rule of law first, like Lee Kuan Yew did in, in Singapore in the, in the 1960s, and then you have to approve more and more investment-friendly laws to attract foreign investors, and you have to create, you have to transform your country into a place that capital wants to flow into. I have no idea if any of this is going to work, but... It's not a crazy plan. Right, right. So you have said to me that, um, well, I'll quote you from the Persuasion essay. Uh, you posit what's going on there is a tug of war between authoritarianism and democracy. And democracy is obviously the ideal and democracy is eroding. But I just question when things are as bad as they are in a place like El Salvador, what does democracy even mean? How much did it deliver? Or succinctly, can you even have democracy when there is no safety? You sound just like him now. <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> well, what I think is that democracy at least gives you a, puts you in a position to dismiss the people running the country if they turn truly evil. And in none of the places where we have seen democracy fall apart, did the guy who make it fall apart come in being entirely evil in the first place? I'm from Venezuela. You know, when Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999, it wasn't saying, well, I'm going to create a hellhole, hellhole communist dictatorship that 7 million of you are going to need to flee to survive. He came in talking about nice things and safety and anti-corruption and gradually morphed into this much more authoritarian and dictatorial figure. And by the time we figured out what was going on, we no longer had a democracy to get rid of them. So um, I think it's essential that Latin America keeps 
at least a capability of getting rid of governments when they go very bad. This is, the, the, for me, the rock bottom basic reason why you need to have an electoral democracy. And uh, it might just be a mouse a mousetrap. You know, the the play here might be well, let's attract people with this shiny policy initiative that works. Once I have all the power, I don't. I no longer need to care if I have their approval or not. Yeah, yeah, that does happen. So what's the way for either institutions within El Salvador, to the extent that any exist that aren't controlled by Bukele, or, I don't know, the United States, outside parties, to press the lever or to somehow ratchet things more towards uh, democratic civil society? I'm just going to let this this pause hang here because I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't know anyone who knows. Right. I know that the U.S. I mean, they, let's talk a little bit about the U.S. role in all this because it's easy to get wrong. These gangs started in, in prisons in the U.S. So, and why did they start? Why were there enough Salvadorans in prison in the U.S. for for these gangs to arise? Well, because there had been a war in the 1980s fueled largely by Ronald Reagan's weapons shipments to Central America that, that caused hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans who have to seek refuge outside of their country, some of whom ended up in L.A. joining gangs and ended up ending up in prison and then getting deported back to their country. Um, so there is a long and tangled history there, but to make things even more tangled, um, the situation now is that El Salvador is no longer generating a lot of immigrants or not a lot of Salvadoreños showing up at, at the U.S. border because suddenly El Salvador is a place where you might reasonably want to live. So in cold realpolitik terms, uh, it is not in the interest of the Biden administration to do anything that is going to make Salvadorans want to leave more. But the basic question that, that we have to come back for we have to come back to is, are we really willing to accept that democracies that protect civil liberties just have no answer to situations where organized crime is as powerful or more powerful than the police? And that is a horrible question to to have to consider. But I think many people in Latin America are edging towards saying yes and saying security is our bottom line. We need that. Francisco Toro is the director of content of the group of 50, which is uh, an interesting group. His work has appeared in The Economist, The New Republic, The New York Times, and he is a global opinion columnist for The Washington Post and an editor for Persuasion. Francisco, great talking to you. Great fun. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. 
I try not to traipse gracelessly onto foreign lands. For instance, that Berlusconi tribute I penned, I wanted to see if there was an Italian word for sex worker that I could use. You know how to sensitivity. So I loaded it into Google Translate. Here is the English. Sex worker. And here was the Italian. Prostituta. Yeah, not as big a euphemism as the U.S. version. Italian street protests on behalf of sex workers, by the way, use the English word sex workers in their signs and in their verbiage. A little closer to home, if not my heritage, is Canada, which we in the Northeast learned last week can affect us. Yeah, right here, down in Reelsville, as an uglier American than I might call it. There were the wildfires, which caused very bad smoke problems in Canada and terrible air quality down here. The question was why? I mean, there have always been wildfires, but it has been drier this year. Global warming does play a role in that. But in addition to the unusually dry weather, other factors include an anomalous wind system. But for that, we wouldn't have even known that there were more wildfires in Canada. And at least one of the sparks of one of the bigger fires was, quote, near St. Andrews in New Brunswick, which started when an all-terrain vehicle caught fire on a trail igniting the surrounding woods. That quote was from Nature often referred to in news reports as from the journal Nature, because it's important that you not think, wait, it came from Nature? It was whispered onto the winds or carved in the patterns of a tree? Nature, which is a journal, goes on to say, there is no solid explanation for this year's anomalous spring. Piyush Jain, a research scientist at the Canadian Forest Service, says it's unlikely to be related to an El Nino climate pattern. Still, extraordinary weather is not unexpected as the planet warms. Climate change is Definitely a factor that is causing these extreme conditions to occur more frequently, says Jane. Okay, fair. So even if the ATV is the spark, the kindling is the kindling that the forests became. Climate change is real and all around us. But there were fires before. There were fires during the last four years, and they were much less severe, even though those years were just as hot. The BBC reported on the question, but can we link a specific wildfire or spate of wildfires with climate change directly? Yeah, good question. Here's what they say. Historical data sets and complex statistical models have made it possible for researchers to show the impact of rising greenhouse gas emissions on heat waves around the world, for example, by making them more likely or more severe. Wildfires, however, result from a complex interaction of factors, including short-term weather and longer-term climate patterns, the type of forests involved, and what people are doing to them, and they all need something to spark them off. That does seem to be the best answer. The link isn't solid enough to convict in a court of law, but you gotta say climate change can help. This became an issue in Canadian politics when the opposition leader in the Ontario Parliament put it to the province's premier, putting him on the hot seat, as it were. Here's Marit Stiles. People closest to the fires are being evacuated. School children in our largest cities are being kept inside. This is not normal. Doug Ford, the premier, would not discuss the role of climate change, saying only... I'm actually in shock that the leader of opposition is politicizing wildfires. It's, it's, it's staggering, really. Now, for Ford and some in his party, who have been dismissive overall of the effect of climate change on anything, they deserved a bit of a grilling. But to be totally fair about things, the answer to the question of cause isn't, but of course it was climate change. Or, you know, without climate change, this never would have happened. The answer is something like, well, climate change certainly can help. It all drew my attention to a Washington Post article. 
How the Canadian wildfire smoke could shift Americans' views on climate. The power of direct experience can change attitudes on climate change, researchers say. There are many quotes from scientists and communicators about how experiencing things firsthand changes minds more than studies do or other types of evidence and argumentation. But nowhere in this piece was a grappling with the issue that the Canadian wildfire smoke, though it may well shift views on climate change, may also not really have had much to do with climate change. There used to be the de facto warning No single weather event can be blamed on climate change. But now that disclaimer has dropped away. Now, it's true. One of the reasons it dropped away is because of some of the efforts of scientists to actually link certain events like the hurricanes and heat waves that were referred earlier. Those can be more directly linked to climate change, but it's not true with wildfires. The Washington Post had this graph. The widespread punch delivered by the smoke wasn't unusual. Recent U.S. hurricanes, droughts, and heat waves have arguably been deadlier and more disruptive, but experiencing extreme weather firsthand can change the way people think about climate change, researchers said. Okay, but arguably, maybe it shouldn't? Or they should have believed in climate change already, and this shouldn't be the thing that changes their minds? And hurricanes, droughts, and heat waves aren't wildfire. Also, They haven't arguably been deadlier. They have been deadlier. The death toll of droughts and hurricanes were bigger than the death toll of the smoke from the Canadian wildfire, which I think was zero. (sighs) None of the scientists quoted in this piece have a problem with the idea that, you know, transforming an ignorant climate-denying public to a more enlightened climate-change-accepting public might be occurring due to an event that's not really about climate change. That, that, that problem, that caveat never came up. Let's be honest, though. This is how we, as a species, this is how we've always thunk. Climate change certainly is real. The consequences certainly are dire. And communicators, scientists, politicians, people who care about their grandchildren, know they've got to meet the public where... They are, attention-wise. And you hope that you could blame the villain, and that villain really is villainous. And even if the blame is not so specific about any one particular act of villainy, you're doing a right thing. Hitler was villainous. I think the U.S. should have entered World War II sooner than it did. Still, there were some dubious arguments to get us into the war. But major events demand answers. An explanation gets affixed. The rightness or wrongness of the explanation, that's not the major determinant of the penetration of the explanation. Sometimes we look back and don't worry too much. Yeah, we're pretty pretty bad, pretty racist about Tojo. But, you know, for a good cause. Sometimes we look back and say, man, we got that wrong. That uptick in weight gain, it wasn't really about high-fat foods, huh? We all had our hearts in the right place, and we're worried about those hearts, and we're worried about plaque. We thought we were doing a good thing. But a high, oh, also a high-fat diet's not great. So add it all up. Who really at the time wants to get in the way of, to quote the Washington Post headline, shifting views? A similar thing happened during the pandemic. People, trying as best they could to get the data and interventions right, sometimes erred on the side of inaccurate information and lockdowns that went on longer than they needed to in some places. Can we say that? But the power of direct experience 
that certainly changed attitudes. And again, I think it's all natural because the whole point of a climate educator and an epidemiologist desperate to grasp onto the salient event, why they all love that salient event, is because they know other kinds of information just don't change minds. So you got to go to where the people are paying attention. If studies worked, you could just point to the studies. They don't work. They don't work to change minds. So you got to point to the orange skies or the dead older relative, and you use those opportunity to change the minds. In a perfect world, strong action wouldn't be so strongly linked to somewhat weak evidence. Or you could argue that in a perfect world, we wouldn't have hostile air and deadly plagues. I mean, you could argue that. But as established, no one listens to good arguments. We're just looking to put out the burning fire. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thanks for listening. E questo è tutto per lo spettacolo di oggi. Cory Wara è il produttore del succo. Joel Patterson è il produttore senior. Michel Pesca è clou delle produzioni ittiche di pesca. The Gist è presentato in collaborazione con la pubblicità di Livsin. Per richieste pubblicitarie vai su advertisecast.com taglia il succo. Un peru giperu du peru. E grazie per l'ascolto. <totipo>